There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Welcome to this week's edition of Next Steps Forward. I'm your host, Chris Meek. As always, it's great to have you with us again. And I'm looking forward to speaking with today's guests, John Cuna and Jonathan Busfield. John was a three-time All-American in track and field at Wheaton College until injury ended his aspirations of reaching the Olympics. He earned his master's degree from Lesley University in clinical mental health counseling as the co-owner of Riser and Tread, a Massachusetts company dedicated to helping males ages 8 to 25 step up and move forward. Jonathan Busfield attended Temple University, where he completed his thesis in therapeutic space, graduating with a degree in architecture in 2006. After two years, he switched fields to clinical social work in order to help people more directly. He co-founded Riser and Tread with John Kuhn in 2019. John and Jotham, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Thanks for having us, Chris. Thanks, Chris. Glad to be here. Thanks for your time. And we're not going to talk about um, what happened over the weekend at Fenway being Boston guys. So we'll just leave that for another show. Low blow. Too too soon? Too too soon? Sorry about that. (laughs) Way too soon. Way too soon. Yeah. (laughs) So your work makes a strong connection between boys and young men, sports and mental health. The Olympics wrapped up not too long ago, and tennis fans were riveted by this year's U.S. Open. Mental health issues took center stage in ways that we haven't seen before, with world-class athletes discussing their very real challenges. It seems, though, that with the public's short attention span, that this moment could pass and we could miss an opportunity to really change things. What did you take away from those conversations that we saw? What do you think we're seeing in a permanent change on the topic of mental health? I would say that the the biggest takeaways that we got um, from it is that people are feeling more comfortable to even have the conversation in general. This has been a a hidden conversation for a long time. Um, Probably within the last five to 10 years, it's been more readily available and people are sort of being more outspoken and talking about it. So um, I did see, you know, I think there's a lot of old school versus new school thoughts of mental health in general. And I think that there was a lot of um, polarization and in terms of, you know, people struggling with mental illness, like just suck it up and just kind of keep pushing forward. So we definitely saw a lot of those types of things, which we find to be a little bit detrimental to the conversation. Um, and I, I do think that it's created a positive and permanent change in the field. I, I don't see this as a situation where it was like the Olympics was a trendy thing to talk about mental health and it'll go away. I think the Olympics was sort of a pinnacle moment for us to continue to talk about it. And I don't think the conversation is going to go away. And I think more and more you turn on the radio and listen to professional athletes or just people in general, thanking their mental you know, skills coach or their therapist, it's becoming more normalized, which helps the conversation to continue to grow and evolve and put as much information in front of people as possible. And, you know, John, Jotham and I, that's what we're wanting to do is to continue the dialogue of how important this conversation is. Um, yes. With mental health, in regards to athletics, but just mental health in general, and then specifically to young guys. I think now is, you know, feeling like finally the time that the iron's hot and people are willing and, and open to even having the conversation. And that's why we really are um, excited about being and having opportunities like this, where we can sort of continue the dialogue and put our message out there. Yeah, for sure. There was definitely some, uh, a lot of polarization in the, to- in the conversations that happened as a result of the Olympics. But I think that 
that polarization is probably needed to push the conversation forward. I think the fact that it's even um, these types of conversations were even in the limelight like they were is a good sign. It means that it's heading where it needs to head. Um, so some of the conversations were definitely difficult that you heard people having and people definitely are, you know, are pretty entrenched in their opinions on some of these topics. But um, to see it, to see mental health and topics related to that center stage uh, for John and I, you know, in terms of the work we do and, and trying to help people it was really important to see that because we know that means that it's heading in the right direction. I think um, seeing athletes speak out as individuals about their their journeys, that's also such a great thing to see. And that's why we started our podcast was to capture that um, because that dialogue helps move the conversation forward as well. I think one of the hardest parts about uh, some of the conversations you saw happening with the Olympics is that the the media and the, and the news cycle tends to move very fast. And I think that's, that's a tough thing to navigate because mental health topics and issues are not, um, not easy to understand. And they're not just what you see uh, the first day or on the surface. They're nuanced and they take some time, especially for someone's story, if it's happening in real time, to understand and wrap your head around what that meant to them on a whole health level, if not just mental health, takes uh, days, weeks, months. And the news cycle moves quicker than that. And so I think people jump to conclusions very fast. So that makes it a little bit hard. But overall... I think it's a great thing that these dialogues were happening and it's moving uh, the conversation in the right direction. You know, and I love the concept of, of sports and mental health. As my listeners know, you know, I'm a huge sports junkie, as we just talked about a few minutes ago. Um, but one thing I've noticed, and I, probably almost every show I, I mentioned them, uh, Indianapolis Colts owner Jim Ursay and one of their star linebackers, Darius Leonard, the Ursay family started something called Kicking the Stigma. And it's all focused on mental health and, and it's okay to not be okay, which has been a big phrase through all this. And so I've been trying to get them on the show for a long time, but, you know, just having that correlation between mental health and sports sort of helps make, you know, bridge that gap for lack of a better phrase. And also I think, um, you know, I've been saying this through, over the last year that the one positive thing to come out of COVID is that it has put a positive spotlight on mental health. You know, it, it's bringing it forward. It, it's to your point earlier, you know, making us talk about it again, you know, how do you feel that the pandemic has changed our collective focus on mental health? I think um, there's probably a, a few factors with that. I mean, you know, anytime a, a global pandemic happens, it it puts uh, something like the concept of trauma, safety, fear, anxiety, those things, it puts them center stage for everybody at the same time. So I think that that is something that I'm not sure we're really going to fully understand the impact of that on, on our collective um, kind of, you know, culture and communities until some time has passed. But uh, it did force people to kind of look in the mirror and, and realize that mental health is a real thing. It's not um, something that, that certain cultures talk about or certain people talk about. It's, um, it's, it's real. And it's something we have to take seriously uh, outside of a pandemic. And I think that's, that's one thing that um, is going to last beyond this is that it, it forced, it sort of uh, forced the, the entire culture, the entire world to confront what mental health means, um, you know, because of those things that were happening, like a collective trauma uh, loss uh, anxiety, isolation, and and life transitions. Those are all things that tend to impact uh, health and mental health. Yeah, I agree. I think it's always been there. I think it's been prevalent. I think it's been the undercurrent that's been going on throughout everything. And then, you know, we all had to be in isolation for a long time. You remove distractions, opportunities for joy, like the things that people were doing to try to sort of just like cope and manage. And those were all sort of taken away. And then that's why I don't think it's new. I think it's just new to our attention uh, on a global scale. And I think that, like we said before, now is sort of the time where we actually get to really press this and talk about this um, as an issue that everybody experiences and just trying to offer some support um, around those things that come up. We were talking last week and one of you said, there's a lot of misinformation and traps about mental health that we need to discuss. What are your big concerns when it comes to misinformation? <laughs> 
I would say that it's, um, you know, it's really easy now to obtain information. Um, and I think a lot of misinformation or things go on to, you know, you know, how do I feel better, right? Searching Google, like what's the, the top five things to do to address anxiety, the top 10 things to address all of these different things. And I think while the, the, maybe the intent is to be positive and to try to be supportive, I think unless you're working with a, you know, a clinician who knows how to navigate those different things, you can actually be exposing yourself to more harm by opening yourself up to these types of things without any real professional guidance on how to address some of those things. So, um, and also with trends um, comes, and I think that we're in this period right now that there comes people trying to potentially capitalize on those types of things. And so you'll hear buzzwords of, you know, you know, that people try to attract ways to sell people on certain things. And I think that that can make it a little bit difficult. Um, and that's where misinformation can come from. Um, and some of those traps that we, that we've talked about. And I think that's why, um, you know, it's a good time to be in this conversation because we get to sort of help guide people who are looking for help in helping them find the right areas to, to be able to do that. Um, because there is just like everything else, not just with mental health, there's always um, misinformation and traps that people can fall into that we really want to try to help people navigate. How do you find the right information for you? And that's highly independent and personalized and searching top 10 things that will help you with that. There might be good information, but if it's not sort of personalized to you individually, it can, it can cause actual harm. I saw an article in which a doctor recently said the mental health and well-being of young males aged 15 to 24 are not being adequately addressed. What are some of the reasons that we're falling short in this arena? That's a great question. I mean, we talked about the pandemic, so I think that that certainly pushed um, mental health and mental health issues for a lot of people. So that didn't help. Uh, I think in general, one thing that comes to mind is the lack of providers. You know, I think in mental health in general, we, we probably have a shortage. Um, probably did before. Now we definitely do just because of how many people need help. So there's a lack of people out there, um, you know, qualified and good at the work. So that's part of it. Um, then when it comes, that's in general, but then when you, you speak to like the, you know, guys in the eight, uh, 15 to 24 year old range, I'm not sure, you know, we have male and female clinicians uh, working for Riser and Tread. So I trust uh, a person's ability to connect with young guys if they're passionate about that work and they've done some of that work before. That being said, the majority of people in the helping profession are not are not male and probably don't want to focus on that as their typical client that they want to work with. So I think that's a reality that we're probably struggling with too. Is that I don't think you know out of the people who um, who go into the uh, to the field of mental health in any capacity, I'm not sure all of you know, the majority of them want to specialize in working with with guys, let alone guys 15 to 24. So the shortage hits that group probably even a little bit more. Um, that's one of the reasons why John and I are so passionate about building a company that really specifically aims to help young guys because we think that that's a, uh, a real need um, and it's a, it's a hole that we want to fill um, by helping as many people as we can in that, in that age range. Then there's some other issues that I think contribute to um, you know, uh, functioning when it comes to guys who are 15 to 24 you know, that, that it's not their fault but still relate. I think social media and the prevalence of social media over the last 10, 10 years or so uh, has not helped things. I think it's caused issues, particularly for people who, you know, their brains are not fully developed yet and they don't really have a, a secure sense of self. I think it's difficult um, to be in those environments and understand how to navigate while keeping stress uh, in a reasonable place. So that's part of it. And then there's other things that I don't think are helping as well, like uh, gambling becoming legalized. I think that's going to be a huge issue for young guys. I'm not sure we even know yet how big of an issue that's going to be. Uh, how readily available online pornography is, I think, is a very, very much a hidden issue right now amongst young males. Um, and then substance use continues to be an issue. And 
Uh, alcohol is a huge problem with that. I know, you know, so a lot of people view cannabis as, as less problematic, but particularly for, for guys 15 to 24, I disagree with that. I think because their brains aren't fully developed, um, they often use that as their main coping strategy for things like anxiety. Um, and it tends to lead to a numbing effect and an avoidance of actually making positive changes in their lives. So I think there's a lot of, a lot of factors that are working against um, that, that, that specific group. You know, and to your point about gambling, I can't count the number of commercials I saw on Monday Night Football last night. It's, it's through the yeah. roof. Yeah, it's becoming very commonplace now. It's being legalized in, in more and more states left and right. And, you know, whether it's uh, gambling, cannabis, even alcohol, I think it's, um, you know, we live in a capitalist society. And if people are going to try to create a business around something and capitalize on it, they are focused on the dollar first, not who it affects. And that's going to come a lot later. And I'm, we're, we're pretty concerned with what that's going to do. And I don't think we're going to know right away, unfortunately. So where are the gaps addressing the mental health and well-being of young males? What are we failing to do? I think to Jotham's point, I think having a presence um, in the field is, is, is one. I think a lot of the conversations to Jotham's point, like gambling or pornography are hard conversations to have. And I think that we're not having enough of them. Um, I think how we talk about mental health needs to shift specifically around young guys, like helping it be more available to them or more of a safer topic for them to come and talk to. I think there's still lots of generalizations and misunderstandings or misinformation about what therapy is, right? So, you know, coming in and lying down on a couch and talking about deep, dark secrets, right? Like certainly that stuff will occur, but if that's the image of what therapy will be, it's, it's not a very appealing thing, right? Especially for young guys who grow up in a society that tell us, don't talk about feelings. It makes you weak if you do, you know, working against all of those things. And so they're working against that and then trying to come to a place that says that you're going to do those things. It, it doesn't, it doesn't really work. And I think that's one of the gaps. And I think that's one of the things that Jotham and I talk about is just how do we shift the language around mental health and receiving help that isn't going to be such a, a stonewall for people to want to reach out to, to obtain the information and to t- obtain the help that they need. I totally agree with, with John on that one, you know, just to, just to add a little uh, piece to that. I think, you know, how, how we educate young guys about mental health, I think makes all the difference. And I think what we tend to see the most is that from the you know, school and or parent side, I think sometimes they're talked at instead of talk, uh, spoken with. I think that's that's a big thing. And then if they're working with a mental health professional, I think I'm not sure a lot of uh, people in the mental health field understand how to connect and get on the same level as a young guy. And I think that's what John and I kind of specialize in doing, what our company specializes in doing, and, and also why we created our podcast. We created the Grim Drive podcast as a way to use, uh, you know, pro sports and athlete experiences as an approachable way to learn about mental health without the spotlight being on the person. I think that's often the first step is how do, how do we educate young guys about real mental health topics without them feeling like they're being uh, accused of having something wrong with them. Anytime we can create that as an environment for learning, I think it makes a huge difference. It gets the wall to come down because they'll be interested. They'll be intrigued and curious and start to listen. And then they'll maybe uh, have that resonate with their own life to the point where they're willing to get help. Well, John, you just mentioned shifting the language and Jotham just made some great points. How can sports reduce the stigma that is still attached to mental illnesses and mental health issues, you know, especially for these young males you're working with? Yeah, I think it makes the conversation more approachable, right, and more relatable. I think that's been one of the massive benefits of having these pro athletes come out and speak about their own experience because we know what's going on, right? We, we know people are experiencing this, and athletes are certainly not, um, you know, immune to dealing with mental health issues. And I think that if, a, you know, if someone who's, 
you know, following Michael Phelps and a big swimmer and really looks up to Michael Phelps and then hears him talk about his struggles with depression and ADHD and how those things affected it. If those are things that resonate with anybody, it makes it, oh, okay. If Michael Phelps is someone who might be going through this as the most successful swimmer ever, um, maybe that's okay for me to talk about too. And I think that's again, why one of the reasons why we've paired these two topics together, because it's really approachable for young guys to talk about something that's already a little bit you know, in their wheelhouse to talk about sports. I know that's a generalization for young men, but, um, you know, sports is a conversation that feels a little bit safe to have. It feels a little bit comfortable to have with your friends, with, you know, anybody. And if we can inject mental health into that conversation, then the, the idea would be that that would become a normalized conversation for young men to start to have, which again, just continues to reduce the stigma and increases the amount of young men that might feel comfortable to come and seek help. And I think, having these, these big top athletes there, you know, a lot of them are role models for young men. And again, if they're seeing um, a pathway um, of support that they're looking at, it, again, it just makes it easier for them to say, you know, Russell Wilson was working with a, like a mental fitness coach and Michael Phelps was too. And Tom Brady does and Brad Marchand and JD Martinez. And, you know, the list goes on and on and on of all these top athletes that are getting this support. It makes it less threatening for people who, um, who might be thinking about it. Um, and also too, I think one of the things that I think a lot of young men struggle with is they just assume that the anguish they're going through is just normal. Mm -hmm. I have that conversation with young guys all the time. Like I didn't even realize that this was something that I could get help on. They're just like, I just thought that my anxiety or my depression was just normal. And to hear stories of people that they may or may not look up, that they look up to gives them like, Oh, like almost this aha moment of, okay, maybe this is something that I should be thinking about too. Cause a lot of what this person is saying, I also resonate with as well. And it just, again, continues to open up doors for people to walk through, to receive help. You know, you just went through a, a very short list of some big name athletes and more and more are coming out. And obviously there are more out there that we didn't mention. How can we better leverage sports to reduce that stigma? You know, a young, these young men and teens, you know, the NFL has got a program, the NBA has a program, but it's sort of like a 30,000 foot program where we're out there somewhat in the community but that's who we need to leverage to, to really, I don't say get access to, but get them to be the, the mouthpiece, you know, for this movement, for lack of a better word, that, you know, everybody goes through stuff and it's okay. To your point earlier, John, you know, don't suck it up and rub dirt on it. You know, let's face it. Let's, you know, talk about it and figure it out. And what can we do there, if anything? Yeah, I think that being able to use leverage, like to leverage sports, I think it happening at the professional level certainly helps. So having programs that people are starting to roll out um, to help support athletes so like the NBA, every team now has to have a mental health professional on staff. I think that, you know, other programs, whether it's college, high school, you know, even starter programs look to the professional realm of for guidance of how to construct programs. And so I think that the more that we can see presence of good programming um, at that level, the hope would be that we'd start to understand that this is something that's not just for professionals, right? This is something that if it's good enough for Tom Brady to use, or it's good enough for Michael Phelps to use, maybe there's something to that. I could be doing this as well um, and not needing to wait to become a pro because the statistics don't lie. Most people don't become professional athletes. And so if this information is only readily available for pros, you might not have access to that. But if you can see someone getting that help um, at that level, the goal and hope would be that, oh, well, if, if this information is readily available for me as well, then I can maybe, um, I can maybe get some of this information too, to, to seek some support. Yeah, I, I would agree with that and add that, you know, I think like John said, it's, it's, it's so important that the, you know, the pro sport level and the collegiate sport level, you have these athletes that are that have a platform are using that platform to speak out about their own experience and the importance of understanding mental health. 
I hope that I think that's going to continue, which is such a great thing. That being said, there, there's a limit to what that's going to do. I think at some point uh, now, in our opinion, you know, we have to translate that to the younger levels. And to me, it comes through youth coaches. To me, it, it, in the last topic, John, you talked about the importance of role models. Like people look around, young guys look around for who's modeling behavior for them, right? And if they're looking around in their community, in their immediate vicinity, and they're seeing bad, uh, bad examples of model behavior when it comes to uh, emotional regulation and mental health, that's a huge issue. So it's great that they're, they're looking at pro athletes and they're going to get a better example for that. But in my opinion, the best intervention point is to come from a, a youth coach perspective. I think youth coaches are still uh, are typically uh, guys from a generation that did not, uh, were not given permission to open up about mental health and understand that. And that comes through in their coaching style. And I think it's a huge issue. So to me, that's where I think we could make the most progress is um, some education to coaches at the youth level, high school and, and younger uh, to ensure that when they're, responsible for coaching young guys, they understand the power they hold and they use it in the right way instead of educating them in the wrong direction, which I think still happens quite a bit. Jotham, you switched careers to help people more directly, but was there a specific moment or event that caused you to make that decision? I think it was probably a combination of of two things. I would say like around the same time, you know, after working in the field of architecture for, uh, for like a year and a half to two years, I started to realize that I wasn't going to be able to have the opportunity that I that I wanted um, to help people on a level that that caused me to get into the field, uh, and that's not to that's not to blame the architectural field. I think that also had a lot to do with my talent and abilities having a limit in in that realm of things. So that was part of it. And at the same time, you know, volunteering opportunities and and other opportunities started to present themselves that that had meaning to me and that I thought um, I'd be good at based on, um, my past experience. And I started to kind of dive into that at the same time. So I think it was that combination of things that made me realize that for me, I think it, it might be best to shift if I really want to help people, um, in the, in the quickest way possible. John, you specialize in working with clients coping with ADHD, anxiety, and depression. What drew you to those areas? Um, my own personal experience. Um, so I was an athlete throughout my entire career. Um, track was my main focus. I ran all the way through, um, through college. I have ADHD. And so like athletics just kind of like drew me to it. It was fast paced. It was moving. It was lots of structure and guidance. And that was sort of a place that I felt comfort, um, and sort of my, um, my access to joy, sort of some of the stuff that I talk about, that was, that was it for me being active and running and track was sort of the environment that worked well for me. Um, and then when I was going through college, um, had a sort of a career ending um, injury where I tore my hamstring and that sort of put me into what I refer to as like sports induced depression. And I just wasn't making good decisions after that um, sort of like severing relationships with people that had once been places. And so I think that my experience um, of going through some of those things, I know it's not unique. I know there are plenty of athletes that go through situations like that. And I think that's what drew me to want to specialize in working with clients that sort of fit that those types of criteria, because I think we see a lot of it. Um, ADHD and anxiety and depression all kind of go hand in hand. Uh, we kind of sometimes talk about the ADHD pipeline or sort of untreated ADHD leads to anxiety, which untreated leads to depression. That's sort of like the, the trajectory, the trajectory that we see with that. And as someone who sort of lived through some of those types of things, I have a real ability to sort of work with people on a relational level saying like, I've been there, I know what can be done. And here's some things that, that really can be helpful to, to navigate and to, to help you through these types of things um, because injury especially is something that most athletes can relate to um, and helping them through those types of things has been something that I've been just deeply passionate about because I've lived that experience and it's 
a real dark hole um, to be in. And so having been there, not wanting anybody else to be there. Jotham, I co-founded a national nonprofit that helps veterans take their next steps forward by connecting them with revolutionary medical technology. And you worked for a time as an intake clinician for homeless veterans at the Department of Veterans Affairs. What similarities did you see among the homeless veterans you worked with? And is there a way to take those similarities into account to prevent some veterans from becoming homeless? Yeah, I would say the, the, main, uh, the main common kind of bond, I would say, is trauma. And sometimes that's trauma as it relates to their military experience uh, and or trauma that, that preceded their time in the military. And I think um, one of the things that even, you know, the Simone Biles uh, topic brought up, but a lot, of, a lot of the mental health and sports kind of examples that keep coming out recently is just showing how many people deal with trauma on different levels and how impactful it can be on a person's life and the people in their lives. So I would say that that is something where if we can, I do think our field is getting more, um, is getting better when it comes to being trauma informed. I know the VA has done a ton of work when it comes to um, educating their staff around being trauma informed with the care they provide. Um, so tra- understanding of trauma and factoring the reality of trauma in to your work with veterans, I think is the most important thing. Um, the second piece that relates to homelessness specifically would be just taking a housing first approach. And the VA does this as well, um, where I think in the past, we maybe looked at, hey, we have to help this person individually, and then we got to do this, and then we got to do this, and then we'll get them housing, right? Then we'll solve their housing issue. And what we've realized, and a lot of people have realized through research and learning the hard way, I think, is that housing has to come first. You get them housing, you get them that stability with a roof over their head and an environment that's conducive to healing first. And then you you get the other wraparound services in place. And, and that order of operations works a lot more effectively to solving homelessness than the reverse. Sounds that simple, right? I know. I know. Pretty methodical. We should call the VA for that one. <laughs> John, you've developed a training program for athletes, coaches, and organizations to strengthen mental fitness and resolve. How do you develop that program and what does it include? So similar to what Jotham was saying a little bit earlier about um, like helping coaches with, you know, shifting the way that they were coaching from a younger level. I think that was part of the reason where it sort of originated from of wanting to just give skills and um, exercises and things like that for, for coaches. Um, It sort of came about that we're really trying to shift the idea that training, when we think of the concept of training includes the mind and it's a muscle just like everything else. And so the program is really to to design, to, to, to cultivate and strengthen the mind. Um, and that comes from a whole host of different things, confidence, cultivation, purpose development, um, you know, just visualization and imagery training. A lot of breath work goes into these types of things. It's sort of a, it's a, it's a program that's developed to sort of strengthen, um, if something were to go wrong, but also to maintain focus, you know, obtaining, you know, the, the flow state or in the zone or those types of you know, buzzwords that we hear, you can actively put yourself in those states of mind. You know, a lot of times athletes will sort of be able to remember one case or a one case where they've got into that. And I can actually teach ways that we can actively put yourself in that situation. And um, confidence is a big one that comes in um, for athletes. And that's one that we really try to center and focus around because oftentimes athletes associate their performance with their mood or their person or their identity. And that's a really unstable place to do that. And so we really work to cultivate confidence in a, a place outside of just performance. We've been talking to John Cuna and Jonathan Busfield. I'll be right back after a short break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. 
The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. The White House doctor makes house calls. Listen every week for House Calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. Dr. Connie has served as the White House physician under three U.S. presidents. Now she joins the Voice America Empowerment Channel to help you enrich yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Our guests will include professionals from a variety of fields who will bring you tips that you can apply to your own life. Listen for House Calls with Dr. Connie every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We hear, just be you, a lot these days. But who are you? What is an authentic life? The answer to these questions and more will be answered on The Authentic Living Show, hosted by Andrea Matthews. Andrea will interview some of today's spiritual, psychological experts and will provide her own wisdom to help you raise your consciousness to the level of your I am. Listen for Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Heard live every Wednesday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Listening to Next Steps Forward. To reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today, please call in to 1 888 346 9141. That's 1 888 346 9141. Or send an email to Chris at nextstepsforward.com. Now, back to this week's show. All right, we are back with Jonathan Busfield and John Kuna. Gentlemen, you're believers in something you call prehab. What's prehab and why is it important? So prehab is an idea that to not wait for something to go wrong to treat. Um, I think that our whole culture, especially in athletics, um, is rehab-based. So train, something goes wrong, rehab it back. Um, and our whole concept and idea is to you can be working on um, re, you know, prehab techniques and um, ways to support yourself before something goes wrong. What we usually see, especially with injury or significant injuries for athletes, is that they 
go through an injury and then they're taken away from their one of their probably their primary sense of joy. They're isolated from their teammates in, in some capacity and they sink into a deep, you know, a dark hole. And then asking them to support themselves when they're already feeling at their lowest is really, really difficult to do. Um, and so the concept of prehab is, well, let's work on confidence cultivation. Let's work on purpose development outside of just sports. Let's work on you before something may or may not go wrong. So if something happens, you're feeling prepared for that. And the analogy I use is if you're being chased in the woods by a bear and you come across a bicycle, you don't want to learn how to ride a bicycle in that moment. You want to know how to ride it and get on and go. And so prehab is kind of that concept of get on the bicycle and just go. Um, And we're seeing sort of really great results because of that, that people are feeling prepared when things don't go according to plan, that they're able to sort of identify that what's going on for them, make appropriate plans and establish, you know, healthy goals and refocus and address what needs to happen. And if that work is done beforehand, when the problem comes up, they know how to move through it as opposed to here's a big problem that's totally shaken me and I don't know what to do. And now I've got, maybe I'm trying to learn that how to recover from that, but probably not. Um, So that's the whole idea around it is trying to shift the idea of waiting for something to go wrong to, to, to receive help. And I think even in the mental health field, we see the same thing that you wait till there's a mental illness or you wait until you're struggling to the point that you can't function to go seek help. And the things that we would be talking about in those times, you could easily be coming in and working on those things prior to. And if we can shift the narrative of what mental health means and when to access the support to preventative and prehab, people are going to be better supported and would probably actually see a decrease in, in some of those things as well. So that's what we really try to push that as, as the new message of don't wait for something to, to be wrong to receive the help. You can get, you can get support so that you're, you know what to do in the moments when you might need it. You also have what you describe as a hybrid approach to treatment involving therapy plus coaching. Could you elaborate on that approach, please? And what is it and how does it work? Yeah, so I think that that relates to what's John, what John's saying about prehab. You know, I think not, you know, out of the guys we work with, not everyone comes in with a diagnosable mental health issue. You know, I think um, that is, uh, for anyone who, who wants to check them out, there's a guy named Eric Cusson who started a, a nonprofit called Same Here. And um, it's samehereglobal.org, I believe. And they, they really help when it comes to global mental health education and reduction of stigma. And the main thing that he talks about is that, like, you know, if we look at mental illness, it's the one in 20 or the, uh, the sorry, the 20 percent or the one in five. And what we have to look at when it comes to mental health, it's, it's really more about the five and five that we all go through things. And it's kind of on a spectrum in terms of what we're dealing with, with at what point in time. So a lot of guys that especially now that the stigma has reduced guy uh, parents and uh, of young guys and young guys themselves, if they're over 18, are more likely to proactively come in and, and get help from us before they are actually at the point where they um, have a diagnosable mental health issue, but they're still struggling with different things where if it left untreated would probably go down that road. And so I think what that means is for the people we work with, not everyone needs, you know, an evidence-based practice for therapy. You know, some of them need some of that. Others need a little bit more of a proactive coaching approach. That's about goal setting. It's about increasing motivation and increasing self-awareness and kind of getting down to work. And so I think what, what John and I do and what our company does is we try to focus on for each person, we try to figure out what the best mix of those things are. You know, is it mostly therapy for people dealing with uh, panic attacks and intense OCD and substance abuse issues and things like that? It's probably going to be a lot more of the, of the therapy side of things initially. Um, whereas for someone who's not that far along and what they're struggling with, it, it might be more of a heavy coaching-based approach, particularly with athletes we work with and things like that. And so I think it's about combining those. And I think what we do is the coaching, um, sometimes, you know, it's about goal setting and really 
uh, motivating a client when it comes to understanding, you know, how to develop purpose, like John talked about, and how to really tap into um, their purpose and their passion and what moves them as a way to kind of increase motivation and get them moving forward. Um, you know, other times it's just about our demeanor. I think our demeanor is that of a coach, right? I think most young guys when they come into therapy, they have an expectation of what they're about to encounter. And it often leads to them not wanting to come in period for the first time until they come in and they actually meet us. And they're like, oh, this dude, this dude's pretty cool. Like he's, he's all right. Like I'll give this a shot. And that's the wall coming down. Their mind is open. They're at least willing to give it a chance, which I think is all we can ask for, right? If they're willing to give it a chance, we, we got to handle the rest with our professional abilities to, um, to work with them on the stuff that's important for them. And so I think in terms of our demeanor, that's also where coaching comes into play. Yeah, I agree. That's one of the biggest things I get is like, was, you know, I asked like, was this what you were expecting things to be? And the most common thing is like, no, this is nothing what I was expecting this to, to be like. That's awesome. That's what you want to hear, right? That makes your day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Like, do what you do. That's terrific. Yep. So you both also believe the typical outpatient sounding board therapy is not enough to help the struggles associated with ADHD. What is the best approach from your perspective? For, well, so for ADHD, I would talk about that that question with uh, you know relative to ADHD and just young guys in general. I think when it comes to ADHD, a, co- a highly structured coaching based approach is typically what works best. Just because someone who has ADHD, uh, they typically lack some of the internal structure, especially at a young age, to stay organized, to stay focused, to stay on top of things. Um, so you know, having them come in and talk about what they're struggling with and sort of the emotional side of things. It, it's still important, but it's not going to really um, implement the structure they need to actually make changes on a day-to-day basis. So that's part of it for ADHD. I think in general for young guys, um, especially guys that are under 25, you know, they, they need feedback. Uh, they need tools and strategies. They need steps they can take. They need help sort of guiding um, a process to learn about themselves a little bit more. And that, that doesn't always just come from, a therapist kind of yesing them up and down and, and, and giving some mm-hmm here and there and getting them to talk, you know, listening is important, but they need more than that. And they want more than that. And so our focus is, is how do we provide, um, you know, we don't, we don't like to give advice or tell them what to do, but we like to be a little bit more proactive in, in giving some feedback and direction for things they can be working on so that they can, uh, you know, speed up the process of getting better and feeling good about themselves. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So you talked about, they want and need more than just a couple of mm-hmm's. Totally agree to get that. So let's talk about the intersection of young males, sports, and mental health. How do we teach these young men that mental health is as important as physical health? I think, you know, to Jotham's earlier point, I think earlier exposure to to the benefits of it is going to be huge, right? And I think, you know, from, from a coaching perspective, incorporating the mind into training wasn't something that was done for a long period of time, right? You want to, you, you strength train, you go to the gym to, to build muscle, you know, you, you do practices, you do drills, you do all of those different things to increase like your physical body. And I think a lot of times we forget like your brain is a part of your body, right? It just requires different types of training. And so I think that's one of the key things that we really try to emphasize when we talk about training. I'm not just talking about going to practice for two hours a day and doing your drills. I'm talking about making sure you're waking up and doing your morning routines and making sure you're doing you know, affirmations and goal setting and visualization training, like that is now a part of your training and helping to just shift the dialogue around that for them and understanding of that. When we talk about training, we're talking about your mind as well. And I think that just comes through more increased conversation and exposure at a young age for kids to understand and adopt some of those different things. I will say that I do see a little bit of shift and change, but I, there's a lot of work that needs to be done um, around, around that. And so, you know, when, when we're thinking about, you know, 
offering our programs, we're definitely, we're targeting high schools, colleges, places like that, that we can really be going in and doing earlier intervention of like the importance of this. I think it's just one of those ideas that for a long period of time, we thought about training, it was just all physical, right? But training the mind and the brain is a part of your body that just needs to be trained as well. There's just different exercises that you need to do for that. It's, it is the stuff that we do through programming and through the work that we done that we do it. I refer to it as weightlifting for the brain. And then it literally um, Sarah Lazar out of Harvard talks about this and she's done the neuroscience and research to, to, to prove these things, but it physically grows gray matter in your brain when you train it a specific way. So it's literally no different than going and doing a bunch of curl ups or, you know, push ups or bicep curls to build muscle. You're doing the exact same thing for your brain. That's just leaving you um, better prepared to manage stress as it comes up, but also to increase focus, determination, all of these different things. Um, and if we can incorporate the word training to include those things, I think that it will start to be just normalized and people won't even give it second thought, which is, I think, the, the ultimate goal that when we think about training, this is just a part of that conversation. You know, you touched on something there that I've mentioned a few times in other shows that I love, and it's a, not a new phrase, but one that's becoming more mainstream is, is brain health. And there's the Center for Brain Health at the University of Texas at Dallas that really is at the tip of the spear of this, um, this research and this work. And you talked about exercising your brain. You know, they're thinking that we learned a lot, you know, that you can't smoke and drink all day from heart health perspective. And then physical activity in the 80s was a big thing. So now brain health, you know, in the 2020s is the next new thing. And so love that we get that phrase out there more. And to your point, your brain is a muscle and that needs its exercise too. And so let's train that along with the rest of your body. Yeah, I agree. And I think our brains are actually pretty geared and focused towards negativity. And so if you're not actively working against that, you are still practicing, right? You're just practicing it incorrectly. And I think that's, that's another reason why it's so important that we teach some of these skills so that you can not only combat what your brain is just pre-programmed to do, um, but you're also giving some skills to build and to be able to, first of all, identify that you're in a negative headspace and then re- refocus and reframe into something more positive. On the long lines of negativity, are there negatives related to sports and young males' mental health? And by that, by that I mean, I think of kids who aren't the star, all-star athletes and they might be bullied or shunned by teammates who are better at sports. Um, yeah, I would say that that's always a, a possibility um, of those things that are that are going on, like not the, not the star athlete um, or the star piece. I think a lot of pressure comes along with being the star as well. Um, and I think this is where you can really look to cultivate like team culture and environment. Um, and I think that if, if that, if coaches are able to do that, I think this is an area that we really look to expand upon. And we talk about this specifically in, in within our program of how to, you know, create a culture that builds off of both communication and support. Um, because oftentimes, and by no fault of coaches that they often spend, they prioritize time with their top athletes, right? They're the ones that can get them the wins. They're the ones that sort of put that. And I think that a lot of, um, which for a few reasons, one, um, puts added pressure on those athletes to be perfect, um, to always be performing, which comes with its own challenges. But then for the people who aren't that, it sort of puts this image of like, well, am I not good enough to get support as well? And it sort of creates all of these different pieces, which again, comes down to education for, for coaches as well, especially at the young age when these types of um, thoughts and um, feelings are being really formulated and um, cemented, which is why just supporting that is is so important. But if you can teach 
um, coaches how to incorporate everybody to stay focused on things. And as problems arise to provide a, an environment that they feel that, that athletes can feel like they're comfortable and confident to come and speak to them about what, what they're going on and what's, what's going on for them. Those types of issues sort of mitigate. Um, and there's, there's really nothing like being a part of a, being part of a team, you know, high school specifically, you get four years of it and that's it. And it's definitely a different beast, even then from in college, college, you know, especially if you're at a pretty high competitive level, it starts to become a little bit more business-like, which shifts the dynamics, but being a part of a functioning, like a well-functioning team, there's really nothing quite like it. Um, and the skills that go into that translate outside of just being a part of a sports team, right? If you can learn how to effectively self-advocate, if something isn't going on for you, if you can learn how to, how to work with a group of people towards a unified goal, that's not just for sports, that's for life in general. And if you can educate coaches on how you can get your teammates to be thinking and performing that way, you're really setting them up for success, not just for the season, but for the rest of their lives. Yeah, I would agree with John on that. I mean, just to echo the, the sentiment about coaches being such a vital you know, part of this process, right? Coaches really need to know how to navigate these things with their teammates uh, across the spectrum, the stars and the worst player to be able to sort of light a fire and, and be able to communicate effectively and get the most out of them and, and be able to uh, encourage competitiveness while also encouraging being able to to problem solve and deal with adversity and things like that. I think this conversation tends to come to a very sort of black and white conversation about, um, you know, hyper competitiveness versus like uh, participation trophies. And I don't think it has to be that. I think there's like a middle ground where like we can encourage being competitive. We can encourage wanting to win while also educating coaches so that when they see someone who maybe isn't uh, you know, the, the, the most intense athlete or isn't the best athlete, um, they don't have to like reward the far opposite side of that spectrum. They can actually still work with them for them to be able to navigate the adversity and get something out of the experience, even if they're not the best player on the team, or even if the team doesn't win. That being said, being competitive is still a good thing. And we certainly uh, kind of uh, support that when it comes to the athletes we work with. Yeah, some of my most memorable athletes weren't my star, weren't my stars. They were the ones that were never going to be varsity athletes, but showed up every single day and worked their tail off and continued to be disciplined and motivated and continued to work hard. And for a coach to be able to identify those as real skills, those are those are real skills that those people possess that they're able to sort of understand they're never going to be varsity, and that doesn't deter them from working really, really hard. And as a coach, if you can highlight that as a skill and an ability for them, you support that for them, and you also continue to push them up. Like this is the right way to work that you're, you're understanding the idea of like hard work works. And even if it isn't going to mean you're going to be a varsity athlete, this type of motivation and discipline is, is going to benefit you outside of this, this sport. And so I would say some of the most rewarding experiences as a coach, it had nothing to do with like my star athletes. You've both mentioned a number of times during the show about training these little league and pop Warner football coaches, you know, because they are role models. They are leaders on the field for these young boys and young men. You know, I've coached the league for years for my son and with, you know, a good friend of mine and his son. And some kids, they get comfortable with you because they know who you are. And some kids are there to, to listen. And some kids are there just because, just to goof off. You bring all that together, go to your point. It's the, the coach's job to to mold all of these young men and, and women, depending on the sport. You know, is that another business model for you out there? Like to have the, the Babe Ruth sanctions or the Little League, you know, have some programs out there because it makes a lot of sense. And I certainly could have benefited from something like that. 
Yeah, I think so. Um, and I, I, I actually co-wrote a book called um, The Coaching Zone with um, an author with another gentleman called John Yeager, which specifically focuses on giving these types of skills for coaches from all levels, from professional all the way down to little leagues and things like that. I think with coaching, what we've seen is that it's not a one size fits all. It isn't. Um, and it's, it has to be individualized to each individual person, which requires a ton of work on the coaches, on the coaches part to be able to learn and understand those different things. And so it's certainly something that we're hopeful to be able to do to put ourselves in this part of the, part of the programming right now is yes, we want to get ourselves in front of athletes to help facilitate conversations and teach skills that they can support themselves. But also the other half of that coin is the support staff that's going to be working with them, which are the coaches. Um, and that's definitely a piece of what we're something that we're looking to support and continue of here are some things to be able to do. Right. So some athletes after a bad performance, they don't want anyone to talk to, right. They don't want, they, they, they're beating themselves up inside their head. They don't need a coach coming and talking to them saying, Hey, that wasn't a great race or Hey, what happened? They need some space. Right. So timing for feedback can be really important. Some athletes need immediate support to catch them and some need some space to be able to do that. And I think, coaching coaches on how to have some of those either harder moments or just how to set a program up with inviting some of these ideas in will just better support them as coaches. It'll make their job more rewarding and it also help the, the um, it'll help the kids. And to your point, it's someone who's modeling that this type of work is important. So that's, that's the real lesson that we're going to spend time focusing on these things so that it's a normalization of that, of, okay, my little league coach talked about visualization and taking care of yourself and stress reduction. It's not something that isn't okay for me to talk about because I'm talking about it at an early age. Can either of you speak to the idea that the loss of a positive male role model has a detrimental effect on boys' mental health? Well, I think we talked about the importance of modeled behavior earlier. You know, I think who you're around, um, you know, who you're around in general in terms of what behavior they're modeling makes a huge difference. And then, you know, obviously um, for a guy, you do, I don't think they have to have all you know, or, you know, a specifically male role model. I think the, just the male, the, the role models in general that are around them, I think is the most important thing. Um, but sometimes to, to look around see someone that, that looks like you, um, that's modeling the right behavior makes a huge difference. And so having that in general is important. If they have it and then lose it, now you're adding um, a layer of grief and loss to that, which I think compounds uh, challenges and struggling as well. And we've talked about sports as a way to reach young males about mental health. Are there other avenues we should explore or pursue to make those connections? Yeah, I think any and every avenue, you know, at, at this point, because um, like you said, I think the, the Olympics really showed, put a real spotlight on this. And I think that's something that Jotham and I talk about all the time of like, how do we increase the messaging across all, all platforms or all avenues to just invite more and more people to this conversation, because ultimately when we do that, we help the conversation move in a, in a productive way, um, as long as it's being guided by the professionals and the people who are working within that field. So, you know, we found that working through sports um, has been an effective way to get the conversation going, but it's certainly not the only avenue of places that we can, that we can sort of look to explore. You can look to explore either through nutrition or, you know, helping imp implement sort of strategies just through school um, and traditional schools and things like that. So, you know, we're always looking for opportunities to 
put support systems in place for people because not everybody enjoys sports, right? Not everybody, not everybody likes sports. Not every young guy likes sports. So, it, you know, if we're not thinking about ways to help them to those conversations, they're sort of left, you know, without getting, without getting that. And so we have to really be creative about how we disseminate the information and where we disseminate it to, because ultimately, like you said, sports is not the only place that young guys come to learn about things. If there's other, op- there's other avenues as well. And we're constantly thinking about ways we can try to put that information in those places. Yeah, I, w- I would say, you know, sp- sports is really important. I mean, I think if we zoom out a little bit, it's, it's um, you know, exercise more important than just sports. I think getting them moving, I think is a huge piece of the puzzle. Uh, anytime we can use movement as a primer for learning in general, but particularly uh, mental health learning, I think that's really important. And then having a group component is really important. I think guys need to be talking to some other guys their age, um, hopefully with someone who can facilitate that, but having these discussions with other people that they consider peers so that it reduces the stigma even more. I think one thing John and I have seen is that on an individual level, young guys, um, maybe just because of their parents, maybe because of what they've read on social media are more likely to individually let the wall come down to, to get help on a one-on-one basis, but are amongst peer groups are still less likely to be accepting of, of mental health topics. And so I think that's where, you know, physical activity and groups are the, are the two avenues that we are most passionate about trying to include more and more, particularly because from a school perspective, physical activity is actually reduced. I mean, you talked about how, uh, Chris, in the 80s, how physical activity was, was a, a really important thing. Um, now it seems like schools uh, below high school are, are removing that more and more to the point where there is no recess and there is no physical activity. And they get like 23 minutes to eat lunch and go outside uh, for a second. And it's, it's just not, to me, that's not conducive to what we're trying to change. So you both have your own podcast. Tell our audience about it and some of your favorite guests and how folks in the audience can find it. Yeah. So I think um, we just started to have guests come on. I think our first John and I talked about this a lot in the beginning. Our first goal was to really shine a light, you know, for the first 20 to 30 episodes, shine a light on the different athletes, um, mainly pro athletes who have spoken up about mental health, just because we wanted to extend their platform as much as we can and use that as a way to educate um, people on mental health topics that otherwise might be difficult to understand. Um, And so those obviously... It was, it's hard when you're an uh, initial podcast to land, you know, big name athletes. So I think we didn't really even go for that because we thought it was just kind of going to be a waste of time to really be able to land those types of people. Um, but now that we're getting guests on, I think we're, we're looking for people who um, can shine a light on specific subjects that we think relate um, in an interesting way to mental health. And so that's not always athletes. I think we, we've had a, a, we've talked to an architect. We've, John, you talked to a guy you know who's a, a strength trainer. Um, so we, we have a few more guests lined up and that's something to look forward to, uh, in terms of what's to come on the grim drive podcast moving forward. Looking forward to that. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. yeah. John Cunha and Jonathan Busfield, you've been our guest today. Thanks for your time. Thanks Chris. Thanks for having us. No, I appreciate you being here. And as always, thank you to our wonderful audience for tuning in to next steps forward. I'm Chris Meek. For more details about upcoming shows and guests, please follow me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Chris Meek public figure. And on Twitter, at ChrisMeek underscore USA. We'll be back next Tuesday, same time, same place, with another leader from the world of business, politics, public policy, sports, or entertainment. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.